0: Hey there, and welcome to episode 38 of Silver Screeners. My name is Frank, coming at you from the wintry depths of Massachusetts. It's Friday, January 28th, as of this recording. In regions of New England are bracing themselves for what's supposed to be one honking bastard of a blizzard. That's right, there's a blizzard warning from midnight tonight to 5 a.m. on Sunday with estimates of up to 24 inches of snow. So we're all saying to each other, buckle up buttercups, because we're in it for the long haul. Just last night, I was at the grocery store, and I was waiting in line, and the guy behind me, he looked to be about my age, give or take, and he only had about four or five things, and so I let him go ahead of me. And like most homegrown New England souls, we commented on the weather forecast, and before I knew it, we were laughing and joking together about Homer Simpson and Mr. Plow. And then that led to talking about our favorite episodes and how the 90s was the golden age for the Simpsons, talked more about the snow, we laughed, we cried, we defied the stereotype of the so-called mass hole a flattering turn of endearment that someone somewhere along the line came up with for us natives of the Bay State. He had his stuff rung up, he left, we'll probably never see each other again, we never saw each other before, and you should have seen the cashier's face when she found out that he and I were total strangers. She looked at me and she said, are you serious? I laughed, and said yeah, but hey, I'll have a good Simpsons-themed dialogue on with someone I've never seen before over a brawl with each other over the last thing of Cracker Jacks. Anyway, happy January all, and wherever you are, I wish you good weather, good health, and good movies. Speaking of movies, that's what we're here for, isn't it? So, let me begin by thanking you for coming back to this show and choosing to click that little triangle that points to the right. This episode is the fourth in a run of them that hopefully is getting you geared up for the upcoming Oscar season. Academy Award nominations for the calendar year 2021 are going to be revealed on Tuesday, February 8th, so that's just a little over a week away at this point. And in this fourth Oscar-themed episode, we're continuing to look back at previous Oscar-winning films and one of their co-nominees. Three episodes back, we kicked off with the year 1976. We looked at the Best Picture winner of that year, which was the first Rocky. We also revisited one of its co-nominees, Taxi Driver. After that came 1981, with each episode jumping forward in time in five-year increments. So for 1981, the featured films were Chariots of Fire, which got Best Picture, and On Golden Pond, which got leading acting wins for Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn. And last time, the focus was on 1986, the Robert De Niro, Jeremy Irons' Best Picture nominee, The Mission, and the Best Picture champ that year, which was Oliver Stone's Platoon. Anywho, in today's episode, we jump five more years ahead and we land in 1991. And if you're under the age of 30 and say to yourself, damn, old movies, bring it on, then all the power to you. And if you're under the age of 30 and say to yourself, damn, old movies, (coughs) then with all due respect, could I suggest to you the words of actress Lauren Bacall, It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. For these Oscar-themed episodes, you all have a hand in deciding which films get featured. I post a poll on my socials at the beginning of each week, with the names of the nominated films to find out which one you go for. This time around went a little differently, because 1991's Best Picture winner is Silence of the Lambs, which I already did an episode on back in October for its 30th anniversary. So you're all cordially invited to revisit episode number 27, a rerun, to hear all about that thriller and its follow-up Hannibal. That means for this week, Silver Screeners is severing up not one, but two Best Picture nominees from 1991. You made your voices heard, so thank you for that. The two nominated films from 1991 that got the most votes are Oliver Stone's JFK, the somewhat fictionalized retelling of the investigation of the events of November 22nd, 1963, And the first animated film to be shortlisted for Best Picture, and that is Disney's Beauty and the Beast. But as I've been doing, in the interest of pleasing everybody, you'll get a bonus fun fact for each of this year's nominated pictures. And that said, as always, we'll begin with spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of both JFK and Beauty and the Beast. Then the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for both. Then the segment called The Good, The Bad, and The Outrageous, one or two memorable moments from that year's Oscar ceremony. And then comes the tried-and-true trivia segment involving all of you listeners. And finally, the big finish, with a preview of the next episode's poll options, the next batch of films for you to choose from for the year 1996. So rewind 30 years back to early 1992 as the 91 Oscar season launched. Turn up the Nirvana and smell that teen spirit as we enter a time when Donna Summer got her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, Disneyland Paris opened up, and Anita Hall set a female world record by swimming the 200-meter freestyle in 2 minutes, 25 seconds, and 35 milliseconds. In other words, let's jump now to the spoiler-free plot setups. We begin with Beauty and the Beast, at the time deemed the holy grail of animation. It was co directed by Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale, with a musical score composed by Alan Menken, based on a story by about 10 different names, and an animation screenplay by Linda Wolverton. It was nominated for six Academy Awards, completely unprecedented at the time Best Song for Be Our Guest, Best Song for Belle, Best Song for the Title Tune, Beauty and the Beast, Best Sound. Best Musical Score, and Best Picture. It won two of those, Best Original Musical Score for Alan Mencken and Best Song for Beauty and the Beast for Mencken and Howard Ashman. Ashman's nomination and win were both posthumous. He died at the age of 40 in March of 1991, so that would have been about eight months before the film was released on November 22nd in Canada and the U.S. The opening shot, after we see that familiar logo of the Disneyland castle, is, to be fair, really deep and layered. Visually, it's really... It's stunning for its time. It's very impressive. You see a castle, high in a hill, surrounded by this lush, natural landscape. It was all devised by the layout department, which was headed by Ed Gartner. There's a deer drinking from a little pond, there's a bird flying around. Both of those animals are from Bambi. They apparently both came from Bambi and were repurposed for this film, for this opening. The filmmakers said that they wanted to have sort of a storybook kind of an opening, but without a traditional storybook. So what they did was they went for the use of illustrations on a series of stained-glass windows. David Ogden Stiers provides the opening narration as he begins the story of a, quote, "...spoiled, selfish, and unkind," end quote, prince, who had an old beggar woman one night come to his door begging for shelter from the bitter cold in exchange for a single rose. Repulsed by her haggard appearance, the prince sneered at the gift, and he basically tells her to go get bent. And she goes, uh, no, you." And she suddenly morphs into this beautiful enchantress. The prince tried to apologize, but it was too late, for she had seen that there was no love in his hat. So in a gross miscarriage of justice, she punishes his entire staff of servants, turning them into clocks and candlesticks and teacups and bureaus. And the prince is turned into, wait for it, a beast. She tells him, you want out of this chicken outfit? Get someone to fall in love with you before that last petal falls from this rose. And she slams it into a glass container and says, later. And she's out for the rest of the tale the prince lost all hope for who could learn to love a beast now according to kirk wise in the director commentary on the dvd quote one of the nice things about this telling of beauty and the beast is that we start the story from the Beast's point of view we learn about his history and his problem and we understand kind of the rules behind the enchantment that he's under this gives us sort of a ticking clock that'll play out for the rest of the film. The nice thing about it is that we give you the history of the beast, and then we ask the question, the whole key to the beast's salvation is if he can find someone to love him. Literally ask the audience who can learn to love a beast. And we cut to Bell. So you got these two fuses that are lit, and, you know, eventually these two story threads are going to intertwine, and these two characters are destined to meet. End quote. So let's meet Belle. This young, intelligent beauty lives with her father Maurice in a little town in a quiet village in France where every day is like the one before. She wants something more than this provincial life. Meanwhile, the arrogant narcissist Gaston is intent on making Belle his wife. He says she's the prettiest, and that makes her the best choice. He's played off as a comical buffoon in the beginning, but as the plot unfolds, he becomes more and more sinister and insidious. He's got a doofus for a sidekick called LeFou, who's there pretty much to serve as Gaston's punching bag, literally. Belle's father is an eccentric, kooky inventor who's loving and doting, a warm, fuzzy kind of a guy, but every time he opens his mouth to speak, you feel like you just fell through the looking glass. He takes his invention off to the fair in the hopes of wowing, I don't know who exactly to be honest, but wowing somebody, but on his way back from the fair, he gets lost, he comes across the beast in the middle of the forest, and he's taken prisoner. Bell, of course, is distraught, she rushes to his aid, she strikes a deal with the Beast, release my father, and take me as prisoner instead. The Beast agrees to this, and let the Stockholm Syndrome commence. We'll stop there for the premise of this animated classic that eventually became a Broadway stage musical, and was then remade with Hermione Granger and Matthew Crawley in the main roles. And now let's really kick everything into high gear and pivot from this Disney-lyric-drenched fairy tale to a whole different animal altogether. So for the second consecutive week, an a Stone film gets some love, so it's round two for him in the Academy Award Arena as we begin with JFK. Released in Brazil, the U.S., and Canada on December 20th of 1991, after a preview screening the night before in Dallas, Texas, I should add, JFK began going global throughout January of 92. It's based on not one, but two books, On the Trail of the Assassins by Jim Garrison and Crossfire, the Plot That Killed Kennedy by Jim Myers, and that's spelled ma rs The screenplay is credited to Oliver Stone and Zachary Skly, and Stone is also the director and one of the producers. Had it not been for a woman named Ellen Ray, Stone may not have made this movie, or at least not under the same circumstances. In 1988, three years before the movie came out, he was in Cuba because he was getting an award at the Latin American Film Festival. When he was in an elevator at one point, Ellen Ray was as well, She was the publisher of Garrison's book, and she handed Oliver Stone a copy of it. He brought it with him to the Philippines during production of Born on the Fourth of July with Tom Cruise, and the rest, as they say, is history. He bought the film rights and hired Garrison's editor, Zachary Sklar, to co-write the script with him. JFK begins with the sounds of a rhythmic drumbeat. The title card appears on screen, saying, To sin by silence, when we should protest, makes cowards out of men. Now these are the words of Ella Wheeler- Wilcox, an American author, the same one who coined the phrase "Laugh and the world laughs with you. Weep and you weep alone." The opening credits get rolling pretty much right away as we hear authentic audio footage of President Dwight D. Eisenhower's farewell address to the nation from January of 1961. Visual footage then comes in as a narrator says, quote, "November 1960." Senator John Fitzgerald Kennedy of Massachusetts wins one of the narrowest election victories in American history over the vice president, Richard Nixon, by a little more than 100,000 votes. Alongside his beautiful and elegant wife, Jacqueline Bouvier, Kennedy is the symbol of the new freedom of the 1960s, signifying change and upheaval to the American public. He inherits a secret war against the communist Castro dictatorship in Cuba, a war run by the CIA and angry Cuban exiles. Castro was a successful revolutionary, frightening to American business interests in Latin America. This war culminates in the disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion in April 1961, when Kennedy refuses to provide air cover for the exiled Cuban brigade. Kennedy, taking public responsibility for the failure, privately claims the CIA lied to him and tried to manipulate him into ordering an all-out American invasion of Cuba. In October 1962, The world comes to the brink of nuclear war when Kennedy quarantines Cuba after announcing the presence of offensive Soviet nuclear missiles 90 miles off American shores. Soviet ships with more missiles sail towards the island, but at the last moment, they turn back. The world breathes with relief. In Washington, rumors abound that JFK has cut a secret deal with Russian Premier Khrushchev not to invade Cuba in return for a Russian withdrawal of missiles. Suspicions abound that Kennedy is soft on communism. Kennedy also finds himself embodied in Laos and Vietnam. Earlier that fateful summer, Kennedy speaks of his new vision at the American University in Washington. End quote. And then there's audio footage of Kennedy's speech set against different clips of him with his kids and his wife and a horse. I know that's a motley list right there, but there it is. And we hear Kennedy say, What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. We must re-examine our own attitudes towards the Soviet Union. Our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. And we are all mortal. It's here where the actual footage gets blended in with the stone film for the first time. The political intrigue really does just come charging at you full steam ahead right from the word go. There's a lone figure she is seen tossed out of a moving car and onto the road, the of never stops, it just keeps going, and the person lying on the ground is a woman who's screaming and cursing at whoever just threw her out onto the road, and she's crying out, don't leave me out here. It's a pretty attention-grabbing opening, to say the least. Real footage of the president and first lady disembarking from the plane that just landed in Dallas is intercut with Stone's movie, as the woman is lying in a hospital bed, and she's incoherently gasping, they've gone to Dallas, they're gonna kill Kennedy, call somebody. The authorities standing over her say to each other, she's high as a kite on something. Been that way since they brought her in. And she just keeps repeating, please and help. Then that drumbeat returns. Real footage of the moments leading up to the assassination blends in with some recreated shots. And the opening credits are not even through yet. Once Oliver Stone's name flashes across the screen, directed by Oliver Stone, you have a couple of more images of Dealey Plaza in Dallas right before the screen goes black to the sound of a gunshot. And that's when Kevin Costner comes in, playing New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison. He's told that the president was shot about five minutes ago. He rushes to the nearest television, which happens to be at a crowded bar with everyone fixated on the TV. The footage that we have all seen, whether we were around then or not. Walter Cronkite taking off his eyeglasses, making the official announcement. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m., Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson (coughs) has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, Presumably he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th President of the United States. A couple of people in the bash shed absolutely no tears as they say things like, good, he's dead, what a bum. But there are others who are sobbing hysterically. Garrison removes his own eyeglasses just like Cronkite did and says pretty dramatically that he's ashamed to be an American today. And all of the elements that have become pretty much part of the American history fabric, the lore of what exactly happened that afternoon, it all comes into play. References to the mysterious Umbrella Man, for example. The grassy knoll, the... The direction that the bullets are said to have come at the motorcade from. The next scene, as strange as it may sound, is a standout. Not for any plot twists or because of any severe dialogue or fancy camera work or anything like that, but because of the actors involved. The one and only Ed Asner and the one and only Jack Lemmon acting together in a scene where Asner plays against type. Eh, uh-huh. Asner, probably best known for playing Lou Grant on The Mary Tyler Moore Show and his own spinoff, as well as movies like Daniel and Santa Claus and Elf. He was famously outspoken in real life in his liberal beliefs. So seeing him in this scene, where he's bitterly commenting on how sickening it is to see people sobbing over Kennedy's death, calling him a bullshit president, saying nobody's crying for the thousands of Cubans that bastard condemned to death and torture at Bay of Pigs... He hurls out racial slurs, talking about how people of color get together with the Jews and the Catholics and elect as president, quote, an Irish bleeding heart, end quote. He plays a chief by the name of Guy Bannister. Jack Lemon is Jack Martin. Bannister raises his glass in a toast and says, Camelot in smithereens, and he proceeds deliberately to dump his drink onto the ground in disgust. Meanwhile, back at the bar, Garrison is watching the news still as events continue to unfold, and anyone familiar with the details of the whole day probably knows the name of the police officer, J.D. Tippett, who was shot and killed in Oak Cliff, a suburb of Dallas, by Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald was apprehended outside a movie theater with the revolver used in Tippett's killing on him. So Garrison's watching Oswald denying the charges against him. A drunken banister, by the way, at Asner's character. He's led by Jack Lemon back to his office where the name in the door tells us exactly who he is, an investigator. He's drunkenly going on about Oswald and how Oswald must have flipped out and just did this crazy thing before anybody could stop him and who would have ever thought that goofy Oswald kid would pull a stunt like an assassination. And when Jack Lemon pushes back on what Bannister says, Bannister looks at him with this look of to- complete and total cold hostility and says that he questions his loyalty. He accuses him of going through his files and being a spy. Then there's an altercation that proves to each one of us that Ed Asner is one guy you just do not want to piss off. Then Garrison is home with his wife Liz, played by Academy Award winner Sissy Spacek. And they're watching more news of the latest developments on Oswald's arrest. The news is what we've all come to learn about Oswald, how he served in the U.S. Marines, became fascinated with communist ideals, declared himself a dedicated Marxist, and... How he was a fanatical supporter of Fidel Castro. He spent the previous summer in New Orleans, which is where Garrison and his family live. During that summer, Oswald had been arrested in a brawl with anti-Castro Cuban exiles. Garrison then picks up the phone to pull together his team to launch an investigation into the potential links between Oswald and the assassination, pretty much to research who Oswald may have been in contact with in his time in New Orleans. Now this phone call plays out while on the TV, you can see more images of Lyndon Johnson being sworn in as president, that iconic photo of him with his hand in the Bible and his other hand raised in the air, and Jackie Kennedy standing by his side still wearing the blood splattered outfit she had on when her husband was killed, like later on that same day. Then back in his office, Garrison is told that one name that kept coming up in connection to Oswald is David Ferry, F-E-R-R-I-E. Oswald and Ferry were apparently seen together a few times in New Orleans that summer. Ferry had been in trouble before. He was an airline pilot who was caught in an alleged homosexual encounter and, as a result, was fired. He was spotted driving into Texas the day of the assassination. And an anonymous source tipped them off that he may have been a getaway pilot for Oswald. And then Garrison and his team, they jump a mile when suddenly, live on TV, just as it happened in real life, Lee Harvey Oswald is shot by Jack Ruby, played by Brian Doyle-Murray, who's a long way away from his role as Clark Griswold's boss in Christmas Vacation. There is Lee There is Lee Oswald. He's been shot. He's been shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. There's a man with a gun. It's absolute panic. Absolute panic here in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters. Detectives have their guns drawn. There is no question about it. Oswald has been shot at point blank range, fired into his stomach. He is shot. He is shot. Oswald. It is Oswald. They track down David Ferry, played by Joe Pesci, who's hot off his one-two punch of Home Alone and Goodfellas, the last of which got him the Academy Award for supporting actor. Garrison and his team, they begin to investigate him. Ferry gives a couple of shaky alibis and... After a brief splicing in of little JFK Jr. saluting his father's coffin, the federal government announces that the FBI released Ferry, lack of evidence that he knew Oswald. Garrison and his team are pretty pissed, saying that the FBI should be on their side, and how they let Ferry go pretty quickly. Three years later, it's now 1966, and Garrison is reading the Warren Commission report, and he mentions to his wife Liz how Oswald was interrogated for 12 hours with no lawyer present, none of his interrogation recorded, A crowd of FBI agents and a police captain with 30 years' experience, he says, all should have known better. That anything Oswald said would have been inadmissible in court, with nothing recorded and with no legal representation present for him. His wife Liz doesn't want to hear it. She tells him dinner's getting cold, it was three years ago, we're trying to put it out of our minds, you keep digging it up again, you're a DA in New Orleans, the assassination of a U.S. president, that's that's out of your domain. Now, I will say this. Sissy Spacek is one of my favorite actresses, but this is probably one of her most thankless roles. She's basically there to say to him, your dinner's getting cold, or you're ignoring me and the kids, and that kind of thing. And this is the 30-minute back in the film, so that's enough for the plot premise. Let's forge ahead to the behind-the-scenes fun facts. So proceed with the knowledge that details from both of these movies including plot spoilers and the endings, may, just may, come fast and furious. So, spoiler alert now. Let's take care of Beauty and the Beast first. Number five. Beautiful Belle, voiced by Paige O'Hara, was the first brown-haired Disney princess. And not only that, she was a fashion anomaly. To show how different she is from everyone else in her village, she is the only one wearing blue. The rest of the gossiping, gullible crowd, they're all wearing anything but that. Number four. Over the years, Disney went through a number of drafts of the story. In 1983, Belle was friends not with talking teapots and whatnot, but with forest animals. If you can believe it, a Disney princess making friends with animals. And in a 1988 version, a script arose wherein Belle had two sisters. The finished product consisted of 7,000 feet of hand-drawn film, 1,100 painted backgrounds, and a whopping 150,000 individually rendered frames. Number 3 Jackie Chan dubbed the Beast's voice for the Chinese translation of the movie, including the singing. You can find him performing the title track in Mandarin on YouTube. Number 2 The Beast is a mashup of a bunch of different animals, actually. He's got the mane of a lion, the beard and the head of a buffalo, the brow of a gorilla, the eyes of a man trapped inside desperately wanting to get out, the tusks of a wild boar, the body of a bear, and the legs and tail of a wolf. And something else. Glenn Keane, one of the animators, says that, quote, The Beast actually has a rainbow bum. But nobody knows that but Belle, end quote. And number one. The prince's name is never mentioned in the movie. The beast, of course, the prince, of course, is one of the two main characters. No name. They are not named at all in the animated film. So at the end, when he's human again, and he says, Belle, it's me, and she looks at him quizzically at first, but then knows that all's right in Beastland once she looks deep into his eyes and sees the depths of his most innermost soul, they embrace warmly. They laugh, they dance, they love. And our heroine has no f***ing idea what his name is. It wasn't until the Broadway musical that Disney announced, officially, the character as Prince Adam. And now it's JFK's turn to jump back into the spotlight. Number five. Casting could have beens. Oliver Stone's first choice for the lead role of Jim Garrison was none other than Harrison Ford. Ford was not interested, though, as he was taking an extended vacation. Stone then looked at Mel Gibson. The two of them actually got together for dinner to talk about the possibility. But there was no chemistry. The meeting was later referred to as, quote, strained, end quote, and Gibson declined as well. Stone then turned around and looked at Kevin Costner, who was flushed with Oscar success thanks to Dances with Wolves, which got him Best Director and Best Picture Academy awards the year before. Costner, who had little interest in history or politics, signed on for $7 million and a cut of the profits. So there's no excuse for him now not to take an acting lesson. Number four Warner Brothers was kind of shaking in their boots when they took a look at the screenplay. The film has a huge cast, 212 speaking roles, more than 1,000 camera setups, 95 different scenes, all of this according to the book, JFK, The Book of the Film. Stone tried to placate the studio executives and reassure them that the finished film would quote, shrink on camera, end quote. To see whether or not they had a potential winner on their hands or maybe a financial disaster, Warner Brothers ran a Gallup poll to, to gauge public interest in a film about the Kennedy assassination by the same guy who did Platoon, Wall Street, and Born on the 4th of July. About 70%, that's 7 of people between 18 and 54 said yes, they would want to see such a film, while nearly half of those 55 and over said no. Number three. After decades of research, Stone stands by his conviction that Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone, and most likely, did not pull the trigger. He told Rolling Stone magazine in 2013, quote, It doesn't make any sense the way they described it. That's the most shocking part of the case. When you start to investigate Oswald, of course there are a thousand interesting things that come up. The files on Oswald were much more closely supervised by the CIA than we knew at the time, and were omitted by the Warren Commission. They treated it like a routine investigation, but it was hardly so. End quote. Number two Polish actress Beata Pozniak, if I pronounce that correctly, played Lee Harvey Oswald's widow, Marina, in the film. To prepare for the role and to do her research, she actually made friends with the real life Marina, and the two lived together as roommates for a couple of months. And number one. The film was attacked by television journalist Dan Rather, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and Newsweek. Newsweek's cover actually read, The Twisted Truth of JFK, Why Oliver Stone's New Movie Can't Be Trusted. Stone called the experience, quote, distressing, end quote. But it also led to the JFK Records Act of 1992, which was signed unanimously by Congress, and signed into law by President George H.W. Bush. And I looked it up. According to CenterForPolitics.org, quote, "...the act required that all government agencies send any records concerning the JFK assassination to the National Archives and Records Administration, NARA, where they would be held for 25 years before released to the public on October 26, 2017." Although the act stated that no assassination records were to be destroyed, many documents, photographs, and audio files were destroyed or went missing, both before and after the 1992 act. In 2017, former President Donald Trump pledged to release all the remaining documents on the Kennedy assassination. But in 2018, he reversed course and delayed the release, citing national security concerns. Between July 24, 2017 and April 26, 2018, over 34,000 records were released from the JFK collection. However, many documents were redacted, while others were not released. And on Wednesday, December 15, 2021, Archives.org, the National Archives, says, In accordance with President Biden's directive of October 22, 2021, the National Archives today hosted 1,491 documents subject to the President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992, the JFK Act. Released documents are available for download. End quote. And as promised, I have a fun fact as well for the two other Best Picture nominees of 1991. For Bugsy... This was the film where notorious womanizer Warren Beatty found himself drawn to his co-star, a rising star, named Annette Bening. They fell in love during the making of the film. They married, they had kids, they remain happily married to this day, and she is often referred to as the one who tamed Warren Beatty. And for Prince of Tides, Nick Nolte, he stars opposite Barbara Streisand, but he was not the first choice for the role. Kevin Costner, star of JFK, turned it down. Don Johnson was romantically linked to Streisand, he wanted to act with her, but when they broke up, so did any hope of them doing the film together. Robert Redford, who starred with her in 1973's The Way We Were, was interested, but scheduling conflicts could not get resolved. So, enter Nick Nolte and his Oscar nomination for leading actor, which went to Anthony Hopkins for Silence of the Lambs. And with that, let's head over to the good, the bad, and the outrageous. The good, the bad, and the outrageous, all according to Oscars.org, the official site of the Academy Awards, so you know all this stuff is legit. Billy Crystal was the host of the Oscars this year. As the show began, he's wearing the Hannibal Lecter restraining face mask, wheeled out on a dolly by two attendants in white coats. He walks off the stage, goes straight over to Anthony Hopkins in the audience, and says in his best Hannibal imitation, I'm having some of the Academy over for dinner. Care to join me? And if I could add on a personal note, I think they missed a golden opportunity because I would have done anything to see one of them turn to the other and say, love the suit. And in his opening monologue, Crystal got in a little dig when he joked, Oliver Stone could win his third best director award. Some say he's paranoid, but his next movie is entitled The Men Who Shot Liberty Valance. So let's swivel towards the final segment of the show, the trivia segment. In each episode, there's a different trivia question that is directly and sometimes indirectly related to the movies or the people in them. Anyone and everyone is invited to take a crack at it. I don't want to take the liberty of announcing both first and last names if it makes anyone feel uncomfortable, which is why I always do first name and last initial, but if you say otherwise, then full names it is. You get a shout-out as well as a movie-related meme sent your way with a personalized message. Last time, the subject was the 1986 Academy Awards and the films Platoon and The Mission, and the question asked was, which 1979 Vietnam-themed film stars the real-life father of Charlie Sheen, star of Platoon? His father is Martin Sheen, and the answer is Apocalypse Now, and if I may, let me send a heartfelt hello and congratulations to the following listeners who sent in their answers. Mary C., A long-time listener who's collecting these memes like Bell collects books. Great to have you getting involved, Mary. There's also the talented musician Jason Ebbs. Go on and check out his music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, SoundCloud, and Bandcamp. He's got albums out called Super Ego, Familiar Villains, and The Deep End. He's got a lot of great content for you to enjoy. Jason, best to you. And then there's also Davey A. from the podcast I'd Give That 10 Minutes. This is a guy who was born to do what he does. He talks TV, video games, movies, and lots of other fun stuff. Usually with a guest on each time. And he's got a knack for making each one feel right at home. It's great to listen to, so definitely check out his show. I'd Give That 10 Minutes. And Kim, my sister Kim, she has her name on the list of trivia champs as well. She sent in her answer from the question I asked in episode 35, which asked about Beatrice Strait, who won the Supporting Actress Oscar for Network in 1976. She went on to play Dr. Lesh in the 1982 horror classic Poltergeist. Like I say every time, it's never too late. It's just great having people listening, so thanks to all of you. And if any other listeners would like to get involved with the trivia, again, why wait? It's fun. Here is this week's trivia question. I mentioned earlier that Emma Watson plays Belle in the live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast. She also plays one of four sisters in what Oscar-nominated 2019 film starring Saoirse Ronan, Laura Dern, Florence Pugh, and Meryl Streep? It's based on a classic Louisa May Alcott novel and is the latest in a long line of film versions of it. Directed by Greta Gerwig, name this film. Send your answers on over, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share on Beauty and the Beast, JFK, Billy Crystal as Oscar host, Anthony Hopkins in his mask, anything about the 1991 Oscars, hit me up on my socials, FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Screeners on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email the brand new email ID for this podcast, silvascreenaspod at gmail.com. That's silver screen is pod, P-O-D, at gmail.com. And how's about a preview of what's up next time? If you can believe it, we're getting into the mid-90s. We'll jump five more years ahead to 1996, the year that the Academy bestowed the Best Picture Oscar to the World War II drama, The English Patient, directed by Anthony Mengele. So for the next episode, you vote for which of the other four nominated films you want to hear about. The one that gets the most votes, it is. The other four Best Picture nominees were... The Tom Cruise, Renée Zellweger, Cuba Gooding Jr. romantic comedy drama, Jerry Maguire. The family drama, Secrets and Lies, starring Brenda Blethen and Marianne Jean-Baptiste. Shine, with Jeffrey Rush in his Oscar-winning role. And finally, the Coen Brothers film, Fargo, starring Frances McDormand in her Oscar-winning role. Keep your eyes open to my socials for the poll and take it from there. And that is it for episode 38. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to listen. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And I'd be very grateful if you could rate or review this podcast on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Good Pods, whatever platform you use. It's a great help in terms of boosting the show's visibility. And I am open to any and all honest feedback and suggestions for future episodes. My name is Frank. And until next time, keep on screening. I'll see ya.